Hello to the listener and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. This is episode four of the Flow series. This chapter of the book is entitled The Conditions of Flow. I thought for once I would just be very sensible at the start of this recording. Hello to Daniel P. Brown in the Private Practice Studio in London. How are you? Hello, James. I'm fine. I'm happy here in the Private Practice Podcast Studio in London. How are you there in... I'm in the new private practice studios in Spain. This is the third country that has had a private practice studio. And right now, I'm in quite a large private practice studio. Before we started recording, I gave Dan a tour, and it's eerily similar to the private practice studio that um, Dan and I know and love in London. That for the, but I just suddenly realised that the listener hasn't seen necessarily the private practice studio in London. And so me talking about the similarities between the one in Spain and the one in London, a self-indulgent thing. And we've already indulged in that anyway off the recording. Mm-hmm. I started you probably, this all... you pro- probably could have just said, eerily similar to the London studio. The reason I started this recording so sensibly is because someone uh, came round to the private practice studio here in Spain the other day. Uh, She's Spanish, but she speaks English. And she's interested in the ideas in psychoanalysis. And I said, well, you'll never guess what. And one thing led to another. And then moments later, she was playing Private Practice Podcast, a random episode, by which I mean I didn't <laughs> I didn't say start with this one and she didn't start with number one. She just flicked up and down and picked one. And I was watching someone listening to one of our episodes for the first time and being slightly puzzled. I mean, admittedly, she was, let's not beat around the bush, she was objectively wrong for starting in the middle if she had started at the beginning she would have got to know us and it would have made more sense but we did basically start the episode with loads of references and chats and jokes and things that just made no sense to this girl and she was kind of thinking we're sort of like quite a few minutes into this podcast now and you said it was about ideas in psychoanalysis and it's two people talking to each other and I don't really understand any of this So therefore, I decided that I would make an effort to make it obvious what this podcast is, what we're talking about, and make them feel like they're not lost and alienated. If they were to start on episode four of season five. (laughs) Which would be wrong! (laughs) Absolutely wrong. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Which episode did she start on? Do you remember? I think it was perversion. Ah, come on. She, she, you know, if you can't grasp what's going on in the latter seasons, I mean, who is this? Also, did your mother know that you had a young woman around to your flat? <laughs> um, she, was, she was round for a massage, but I was not giving the massage. Someone else was giving the massage. She had quite an experience that evening. She had a massage and in the dark uh, with sort of like candles and, you know, New World hippie music. And then she sat around a large plate of mango that we all ate listening to an episode of Private Practice Podcast. 
And there was there was someone Spanish there who didn't speak enough English to understand any of what was going on, and uh-huh. she was kind of like she was completely alienated from that situation. <laughs> right. Okay. So that that sounds like a fun evening for at least one of you. <laughs> um. So so did you get any positive feedback? Did she say um I'm probably not going to listen to this or oh could be interesting? What did she say? I don't know. If I was to guess, I imagine that she probably didn't go on to listen further at home. I think she was very keen to listen, and then that little taster made her slightly confused, and she probably went away thinking, oh, maybe, which means I'm not going to listen to this. Yeah. Okay, well, well, well done for the marketing skills there, James. <laughs> We're branching out into a new country, a new territory for, uh, for the Private Practice podcast, and you... Fail. Well, I don't know. That's pure speculation based on looking at her facial expressions in quite a dimly lit room, and I'm not very good at reading people's emotions anyway. So, mm-hmm. um, do we want to talk about your brother Ben, who is now a bigger feature in my life than you are, or do we just leave that, ignore it, and get on with the episode? I think we should probably just leave that and ignore it. So this chapter is called The Conditions of Flow. I don't know if it will have a different title when it's released because the cha- I, th- I said at the beginning the chapter titles are quite boring. So, um, But then maybe we should just have sensible, practical chapter titles where the episodes match the chapters of the book and it is simple and normal for all people to understand and we don't confuse people. Maybe that's a good idea. Sounds maybe like I've a good sp- idea. Well, maybe I've just spent my life trying to be funny and trying to be clever all the time, and it's time I realised that it's not necessary. So this is number four, and the bit that Dan doesn't like, but I still feel the listener might find this context whimsically beneficial, um, is that since chapter three, where I was in Montpellier, It's been quite a long time, so the season has changed. I've lived in three different countries, so what I'm saying is quite a lot of of time has passed. And in that time, I mean, I'm not going to give a comprehensive travel diary of uh, Italy or anything like that. Dan is now leaning back, suddenly found something itching on the back of his neck that he didn't realise needed to be scratched. Uh, But what I'm saying is some time has passed since we last recorded and I think that this is, I've just turned this into a production meeting, I was just about to say that probably (sighs) instead of having 10 episodes leading up till Christmas like usual we're probably going to have 5 episodes and then our Christmas special and then the other 5 episodes in the new year so it'll be a split season with a Christmas special in the middle. I think that I'm, I'm going to keep that in the episode because now the listener will be prepared and it will not be a surprise because not only do people like normal, clear, easy to understand things to be laid out in front of them, they also don't like weird surprises further down the line either. So now they know exactly what's coming up. Five chapters of the flow book, mm-hmm. then a flow, let it flow, let it flow, let it flow Christmas special. Oh, very good. Then the remaining five chapters of the book in the new year. Brilliant. And if they listen to this much further down the line, they can reorder it. So they listen to all 10 chapters and then the Christmas special at an appropriate festive time. 
Excellent. Okay, good. Right. So all the housekeeping done. And this time it took under 10 minutes. So before the 10 minute mark, we can actually get into the chapter. I think we've done really well. Fantastic. There are lots of uh, French bits. I can't wait to bring those up. There's a really complex diagram and description of that diagram combination, which I'm really looking forward to translating to an audio medium. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some stuff about finding flow and happiness as a Nazi. I think we've possibly touched on people finding flow experiences in the course of being a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp, but this time being a Nazi. And then we've got some stuff about being selfish and or overly selfish and overly anxious, which mm -hmm. I enjoyed. And then towards the end of the book, I will admit something. I have read this chapter in full, but I read through it again in detail today up until the last few pages when I had to switch from reading the flow book to reading um, a story about some carrots who don't like the other vegetables, but then they realise that the other vegetables are fun and they realise that they were being racist and that they shouldn't consider themselves a superior race to the other vegetables and that all the vegetables should be friends together and that's what happens in a happy ending and I had to read that book instead and sort out some activities, cutting out and word searches and things for kids and then I had to go and... Um, read that story to the children and get them to do all the cutting out and ask them questions and, ooh, what colour's the carrot? It's orange. And what do you think is the moral of this story? Don't be a racist. And then I came back and we have immediately started recording chapter four of uh, The Conditions of Flow. And so I haven't fully reread The People of Flow, which is the end of the chapter where there's some examples of people who've just got flow nailed. Okay, cool. So let's get on with it. <laughs> Kick us off then, James. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first paragraph. So I'm not, this is the only substantial chunk where I'm actually just going to read out from the book because, I mean, he knew what he was doing when he introduced this chapter and I don't feel I can do it better than he did. So, Aha. Uh -huh. We have seen how people describe the common characteristics of optimal experience a sense that one's skills are adequate to cope with the challenges at hand in a goal-directed, rule-bound action system that provides clear clues as to how well one is performing. Concentration is so intense that there is no attention left over to think about anything irrelevant or to worry about problems. Self-consciousness disappears and the sense of time becomes distorted. An activity that produces such experiences is so gratifying that people are willing to do it for its own sake with little concern for what they will get out of it, even when it's difficult or dangerous. But how do such experiences happen? How do you think they happen? Well, I just calm down a bit. Well, I, I guess they happen through practice, through effort, which then becomes uh, effortless at a certain point. It depends exactly what you're talking about. If it's a new activity, I'm guessing you need to um, invest energy and time and commitment, and there's going to be like changes in your thinking along the way. So generally, you don't just fall into flow 
you and and he often calls it the autotelic experience doesn't he doing something for the sake of something rather than for the outcome of it just doing it for the for the the pure enjoyment the pure involvement the immersion into the activity so if we think about it, something like painting i'm guessing you you could to begin with, just do something wishy-washy, you know, colours on a page, the brush splashing around, creating some kind of um, enjoyable, nonsensical, um, messy pattern, and that could be very enjoyable. But if you then wanted to create something specific, you might need to learn brush stroke or, or technique with the paint or to know more about your materials or the medium that you're painting on. And so then as you're learning that, it, it could be either be very enjoyable or quite frustrating. And, and I guess the more you do it, the more you get closer to that immersed, involved, autotelic flow experience. Well, I don't know if that was coincidence or not, but you've basically just described the diagram which I'm really excited about translating from the page into an audio medium. So if you want to ruin the fun, dear listener, you could look up this diagram and have it in front of you. Also, if we wanted to be, you know, like other podcasts and doing it properly, we, we would put on our incredibly popular social media channels the image and then people would look at that as they were listening and think, oh, yeah, oh, I can see that. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Oh, that's exactly, yeah, no, it's a really good description. Like, yeah, it makes sense looking at it. Yeah, it's really interesting. And in fact, it's, it's really enhancing my experience of looking at this, hearing it being described by that radio friend of mine there. But we don't do things like anyone else. What we do is do it like this. There's, there's the, imagine it's a normal graph. You've got the two axes. There's the up one and then there's the long one. The up one goes from <laughs> zero to infinity. And within it, we have specified a chunk that starts at low and ends at high. On the across one... <laughs> Wait... James, I've been looking James. forward to this all afternoon. On the, yes, sorry, what? They're called the X and Y axes. Okay, so on the Y axis, we've got, again, zero to infinity. And it's also a chunk that is specified from low and high. The X, is the, is the X the up-downy one? I'm not going to lie, I can't remember. The up-downy one is challenges. And the left-righty one is skills. We've therefore got low to high challenges pitched against low to high skills. And if you imagine you, you match your challenges with your skills, you therefore have a, a diagonal line that goes up the middle of the space between the two axes. <laughs> but instead of it being a line, it's kind of an area because it's not just... The line is perfect flow, but perfection doesn't really exist. You just have an idea of flow. And so either side of that line is a region that we consider to be flow and that's called the flow channel and it goes through the space wherein challenges and skills are both matched with each other if however you go out of that into the gray zone heading north you arrive at the what is marked here in the a3 position <laughs> I, I knew I was going to enjoy this, but I'm really enjoying it more than I expected. In the A3 position, you go thrusting towards the word anxiety, which is written in bold type. If, however, you go 
um, east. <laughs> And you follow that arrow, you get to the A2 position, and there's another big word in bold, and that's boredom. So too many skills, but not enough challenge is where you find yourself at A2, and the emotion is boredom. Too many challenges, but not enough skills is where you find yourself at the A3 position, which is anxiety. So when you get to either anxiety or boredom, you can then readjust. So at boredom, you've gone too far west. You can now go north to the A4 position, which is back in the flow channel. Did you think I'd summarized the graph? No. <laughs> I mean, yes, you summarized the graph, but not well. <laughs> that, 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 was, that was the worst. <laughs> how would you describe what he's saying with the graph? With the gr how would you use words okay. to <clears throat> paint a picture in the listener's okay, mind? Okay, okay, okay. You, ha you have a standard X, Y axis graph that's looking at challenge and skills for any activity. Okay, so we're plotting challenge versus skill and we're looking for the area that creates flow. So in a certain greyed out area, which is labelled anxiety, which is the upper half of the diagram, or in the medium uh, third, uh, so the lower third, which is boredom, which is also greyed out, you're not in flow. If you're in anxiety state or if you're in a boredom state, you're not in flow. So what the flow channel, which is a big stripe in between anxiety and boredom on this graph, is suggesting is that flow is the balance, is finding the balance between boredom because you can do this activity like without you know without any effort and anxiety which is where you're not able to do the challenge that you're setting yourself with an activity but in that sweet spot in the middle is the flow channel and he uses arrows and a variety of words to indicate this but really the diagram is simply trying to say in the sweet spot between skill level and challenge level and the feeling between anxiety and boredom is flow. Excellent. Thank you. And um, he also says that uh, in... Hang on, are you, are you upset? Are you upset? No, no, no. I did exactly what I wanted, which was to describe it in a preposterous way and make myself laugh and then turn to you <laughs> to do it properly. That's, oh, okay, it couldn't cool. have gone We're better winning. than how it went. It was, it, Brilliant. I actually I... imagined how it would go and thought... Mm, I don't want to keep doing this because I'm imagining this is going to be hilarious and in reality I might actually just irritate you or do it really badly and irritate no, myself because no, I then have to edit it. No. It turned out perfect. I got exactly I what I wanted. I thought it was. I wanted it too and I enjoyed it. Although we have actually skipped ahead. We've missed a whole double page spread on which I've written many, I many... did wonder. Many notes. You just got so excited. Yeah. Also, if the listener does enjoy trivia and bits of tittle-tattle that they can put in their private practice podcast scrapbook yeah. chapters one to three i've been making notes in blue pen and for chapter four i oh. used a purple pen and i actually have a four color biro that has lime green cyan and pink as well as purple so oh, see if you can I guess which color i'll use next time i'll try and remember to use one of them and to tell you next time and you can see if you were right so for the for the benefit of having um full information for their scrapbook i have been using black pen on every other chapter and this time i use lime green and in purple i have firstly there's a bit about mushrooms 
which I thought you would oh, get very excited. That? Well, on page Where? on page seventy three, there's a whole chunk about mushrooms. So when you one of the many reasons I was surprised that you said you found this <gasps> chapter boring yes. is that there's a whole chunk no, on mushrooms. I Yes. Okay. 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 Wait, wait. 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 Where? 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 I did. I did. So basically, what he says at the end of the first introduction is that the chapter is going to explore the particular activities that are likely to produce optimal experiences and the personal traits that help people achieve flow easily. Types of activities and personal traits. That's what we're looking at in this chapter. Da, 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 da. Not a diagram. Badly explained by James and relatively well explained by me. <laughs> just so you know. The conditions of flow. OK, let's just do this double-page spread in the order that it is on the double-page spread rather than jumping straight into mushrooms because then it will be very easy for everyone to follow it and that's exactly what we should do. So it starts yes, with okay. the question... Why can some people find they are experiencing a flow activity in a concentration camp under horrific oppression and with none of their human rights intact, while other people on a luxury holiday in a fancy resort can get really bored, frustrated, anxious, find that they've brought all their emotional baggage from home as literal baggage on the airport carousel, which they then had to heave to their luxury resort. And they opened it up as if it were a can of worms. And those worms are wriggling all over the golden sandy shores. Um, I would say to that that travel is not a predeterminer of flow, which is basically what he's saying, but that the experienced traveller flows as they go, which neatly allows me to say that when I was on the golden sands of the dunes of the Grand Traverse near Montpellier, I reached full flow. At the time, I was actually making notes for a future chapter. I think it was... Um... Yes, that was it. Work as flow. So whilst I was not working and just faffing about on the beach all day, I was reading the chapter about work and having flow experiences, and then just going into the wonderfully warm, crystal clear, calm waters of the Mediterranean and flowing myself on actual water. Back in the room. Uh -huh. um, so yep, basically, good, good. he starts with, travel is not a predeterminant, or no, this is, I'm quoting myself here, as if it's, travel is not a predeterminant of flow. That's an example. So you think that going on holiday is going to be a flow experience, but you can just... You can take all your emotional baggage on holiday, and I made the joke. So how come some people can experience flow under oppression and other people in a supposedly... Idyllic. Idyllic activity, being on holiday, set up for flow. And as in, you, when you go on holiday, you have control over what you do, so you can make it a flow activity. What that's basically saying is you have to make it a flow activity as opposed to assuming that it will just happen. And so, you know... I'm going to not garble my words for this bit because this is, the, this is another bit that I've been really looking forward to. And so, you know what we could sing at this point? No, what could we sing at this point? You know the song... Uh, it would help if I could remember the actual title of the, of the, of the song that I'm about to uh -huh. sing for okay. tune. Uh, Massive Attack, Teardrop, that's it. How, yes. does, how does the chorus go? 
No, sorry, not the chorus. How does the, the verse. first verse go? <clears throat> love, love is a verb, love is a doing word. Flow, flow is a verb, flow is a doing word. Excellent, good. I'm, I'm glad we got a bit singing <laughs> in today. It's really, it's really jollied up the episode. Uh, can you do that? And I'll see which I prefer, yours or mine. <clears throat> no, I, I don't... I, I, for some reason, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, hold, hold that thought, because you know what I could do right now is... Seeing as I do have a musical instrument uh, right next to me, which I've never, ever learnt to play before in my life, as a... Okay. As, yeah, I'm just going oh, to assume... It's a, it's a guitar. Can, yeah. a guitar, right, yeah. Flow, flow is a verb. Flow is a doing word. la 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 um, well, okay, so flow is a doing word, similar to Massive Attack's understanding of the word love. It's something you have to do, it's not something that just happens, it's an action, it's an activity. Yes, and I think we've Aha. really hammered that home with my musical interlude. That was great, I mean... And the joke that I'm now going to refer back to for a second time of emotional baggage coming down the luggage carousel of an airport. So next, I can bring in the French. Roger Quillois, the French psychological anthropologist, divided the world's games, the games being examples of activities in which you can find flow, Mm-hmm. into four broad classes. Would you like to summarise those classes? They are all in italics if you need reference on page 72. Well, I know that agon, which is one of the categories, includes games that have competition as their main feature, so sports and athletic events. Do you want to give us one? Alia is the class that includes all games of chance, from dice to bingo, so all the things that I don't think are proper games because they don't require any skill or strategy. It's just totally random. And all my children really like all that kind of nonsense, and I have to pretend to like it as well because it really isn't appropriate for me to say that actually there's no skill or strategy in this game. It's just luck, and when you're older, you'll realise that. Uh-huh, okay. Um, and then there's Vertigo or Illinx, game uh, that is activities that alter consciousness by scrambling ordinary perceptions. That's one I probably enjoy quite a lot of. Bit of Vertigo, such as riding the merry-go-round, skydiving. And Mimicry is the group of activities in which alternative realities are created, such as dance, theatre and the arts in general. Lovely. So we've got Agon, Vertigo, Alia and Mimicry. And just in case this episode wasn't getting lofty enough, what uh -huh. with me performing live music and quoting a French psychological anthropologist, there's now some Latin. The roots of the word compete are the Latin competere, which meant to seek together. So in other words, competition... The idea is that you are challenging each other. And later on in this episode, we will be talking about people who are too self-conscious or too selfish to be able to find that 
flow in competition or just any daily life activities that require interaction, empathy, concentration, being in the moment, etc. So uh-huh. now we're on to the mushrooms. And he's basically talking about hallucinogenic drugs. James, and- James, let me just stop you for a moment. You know, aren't we, aren't we talking about it as well? Aren't we maybe thinking about why that's in there? Aren't we breaking it down a little bit for the listener? Or are we just literally reading them bits of the book? I'm going to just take a moment here to acknowledge that I've slipped into bad behaviour. I'm not really in the moment. I'm not, taking, I'm not paying enough attention to what I'm reading. I'm just going from one opportunity to be silly to the next. I've done my stupid turn a graph into radio. I've done my stupid get the guitar out and sing Massive Attack. And I've done my stupid joke about emotional baggage on the airport carousel. I need to take a deep breath and concentrate and pay attention and be in the moment and think about what we've said so far and look at Dan, because I'm also eyes all around the room, look at Dan and start with my usual trick of, so Dan, what do you think of that? Well, James, <clears throat> I think when you read in the book, there's, there's all kinds of examples that he gives that are kind of... Um, you know, he's he's reference he's referencing outside to to back up his theory and 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 help explore examples further. I mean, I don't really know whether Roger, uh, whatever his name was, or Roger, whatever his name was, I don't know whether it's really that relevant. But he's just breaking down the kinds of activities and showing that actually the reason we pursue those different activities maybe for the same reason but there's a different quality to them like the games of chance or the the games of sport like the the there's the winning there's the excitement there's the changing your reality there's the mimicking reality you know the, the famous phrase isn't it you know art mimics life and sometimes life mimics art um so he's looking at those different categories and trying to get us to think about what it is that we do and what it is that we enjoy. So he's used that uh, French psychological anthropologist just as a kind of like an anchor to to, to pinpoint. Uh, I don't think it's that relevant because what we're talking about, uh, for us, I mean, the the book obviously is relevant. I think what we're talking about is looking at what kind of experiences the listener enjoys doing. And, And I'm wondering whether it might be useful for us to think about something that you enjoy doing and the things that get in the way of that. So whether it be painting or reading or being some somewhat creative in, in one way or whether it is a game or a, you know, or a, uh, or a social experience, an interaction. Or I'm wondering whether it would be useful to think of a, a real-world example for, for any of those, perhaps, before we get onto the, the chapter that's all about mushrooms. But it's not actually all about mushrooms. It just says magic mushrooms once. There, yeah, there's not even a chapter, it's a paragraph. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I just, I just think for the listener, it's, it is about breaking down, if, if there's a purpose to this podcast this season, it's about trying to, I mean, what is it that you love giggling about each week on the front cover of the book? The fact that it says the classic work on how to achieve happiness, if it is a classic work on how to achieve something, happiness is not the word for what the book is about. It's interesting because I think sometimes we could consider ourselves uh, our happiest uh, or our most content when we're engaged in a really meaningful activity. And that is what the book's about. But perhaps it doesn't stretch it out to all areas of life or perhaps the, the, the energy that would be needed to create flow in all areas of life, work, relationships, love, 
um, housework, um, it would be very, very difficult. But I think he's trying to indicate to us that all activities can be enjoyable. And if you aren't happy when you're enjoying something, well, what are you? So it's an arguable point, James, but I do think the, the essence of flow is contentment, which could be happiness, it could be uh, challenge, it could be excitement, but it's, it's there in the activity and he is suggesting that all activities can be like that and that's why he's using this chapter to break down the different kinds of activities. Um, although in this idea on games, the French guy is just talking about the different kinds of games that we have the different kind of almost like pastimes he's not looking at the kind of day-to-day chores of life or and he's not really looking at relationships outside of the the gaming sphere yes i it's interesting for people who are interested in games and games like you said are representations of aspects of reality which may be exaggerated or simplified for their purposes, but I don't think it's the most interesting thing in the chapter because it's a completely different subject, the parallels between games and reality. The, the relevance here is that you can achieve flow playing games just like with any other activities. And in fact, the graph, the one that's um, plotting the space between anxiety and boredom so when you don't have too much of either of those you are in the in the flow channel it's actually a graph representing someone playing tennis as an example so for example if you are playing someone if you just started playing tennis against Rafael Nadal you're going to be really anxious because you're going to think this is really difficult and I've got no way there's absolutely no way I can achieve anything here so you're not you're not matching your skills and your challenges equally if you just never progress from getting the ball from one side of the net to the other you will eventually get good at that but you'll just be doing it over and over again until it's really boring so that's uh, one thing that we didn't really say about this matching of skills and challenges is that it's not like there is imagine the living room and you've got the sweet spot of the of flow on the rug in the middle of the room. And that's where <laughs> anxiety, the, the sofa of anxiety and the TV of boredom are perfectly in harmony. It's not actually just a rug in the middle of the room like that. The reason it's the flow channel is because the flow experience gets more and more complex as your skills increase and your challenges increase. So it's not just a case of getting to the middle. It's a case of trying to travel along that channel in the middle without straying into anxiety or boredom, but keeping going along that channel. It's movement, which is Mm. why I got out the guitar and started singing flow is a verb, flow is a doing word, because it's not just the case that you have to that you have to make the effort to, to achieve the enjoyment of flow. It's that you have to constantly match the skills and the challenges. And the more you do that, the more complex you become as a person and the more complex the activity becomes and therefore it's more enjoyable. And so when I was also being stupid about traveling, what I was actually getting at is that from my recent experience, because obviously last year I did a big month-long trip, this year I did um, a trip around Italy. Whilst doing that, 
it was really obvious this year how much more enjoyment I got out of that trip than last year. There were, even though I had a fantastic time last year, there were certainly anxieties, there were certainly pitfalls that I fell into, things where I wasn't paying enough attention. So you you don't necessarily think of travelling as being a sequence of challenges and skills in conflict with each other, but... There is a skill to traveling. If you have unrealistic expectations, if you think that traveling is going from your life with problems to paradise where your problems just disappear, then you're never going to enjoy traveling because you don't leave your problems behind, you take them with you. Equally, travel does present a series of challenges. It could be something obvious and simple like your emotional baggage. How many times can I get this into the episode? I should keep a tally. If your emotional baggage doesn't come off the plane or it's late or, you know, they've made a mistake and they've sent it to Prague and you've turned up in Naples, um, that's a challenge. But there are constant challenges, like if you don't understand the language, if you get lost, if if you miss a boat if you have your money stolen, if it doesn't have to but, be... A- James, I don't think challenges are only that in travel. The challenge is filling your time meaningfully. The challenge is getting to the place in itself, you know, finding the route, uh, finding the best route, finding the most scenic route, finding somewhere to eat. The challenge for a traveller who is continually learning to travel as best she can is to be always improving that experience, to be getting to live as close to the way the locals live. That's a perfect challenge, trying to experience life in another culture and evaluate it in comparison with your own and learn from it and to enjoy the process as you're doing it. That is an excellent example of a flow activity, but it could be a different challenge. That's just one. It could be learning to enjoy your own company, which is relevant when you travel alone. It could also be learning to enjoy the company of others if you travel in a group. So instead of constantly arguing and working out how the holiday is going to pan out, it could be the challenge of being able to enjoy time with your friends. Because more often than not, especially if you watch documentaries on BBC Three, group holidays tend to just be the challenge is who can get the most drunk and therefore have legendary lol stories to come back with if they can remember them. That's not necessarily the most enjoyable way of travelling, neither in the moment nor when you get back as a, as a memory. So the, the experience, the, uh, the challenge of travelling could be to enjoy time with friends or family. And I think most people probably fall into the habits of arguing with families when they go on holiday. That's a fairly established cliché. Right. Now, what I want you to do is to just take a moment or four whilst I take these headphones off. And I want you to just think about what we're talking about in terms of the anxiety boredom continuum or the anxiety boredom areas and finding the flow channel in relation to two things. One, us creating this podcast and two, the listener enjoying or 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 getting into this podcast i'm going to give you two minutes to do that and and then we're going to have an explore of that um we might even as well look at the games within that okay all right
And three, two, one, we're back in the room. I think from the point of view of the listener, the challenge is probably to be able to understand the message of the book and how it's relevant for their life. And if that challenge is too difficult, it's probably going to be to some extent us racing through the book or making it completely incomprehensible so they don't actually have a reasonable chance of being able to understand what it is we're talking about and how it's relevant to them. Equally, if it's too easy, it would be a case of us constantly repeating ourselves and they think, I've already got that, I'm bored, and they start to daydream or turn off. We created Private Practice Podcast on purpose. Every season, every time we have a production meeting, every time we have some space and time between the seasons, we have to stop and re-challenge ourselves, but also... Uh, so that we don't get bored and so also that we're not so anxious. We're not talking about topics that are way out of our ability to to translate into an interesting, enjoyable podcast format. But we also can't do something so so dull and boring and monotonous that it is predictable and, and, and creates an, another sense of being uncomfortable. But we also have to do that on an episode-by-episode episode basis. And whenever there's a gap in us doing this there's a lack of practice we fall back into the what i would consider as boring habits that we may well have zoomed through in season one and we have to stop challenge ourselves think for a moment manage the anxiety of having to bring that podcast back to something that is interesting and enjoyable for the listener in order to give them the opportunity to experience this as flow or give them the opportunity to, to to find it not only pleasurable, like your singing was, of course, or your continuous repetition of the um, uh, emotional baggage conveyor belt, but also so that it's challenging to them, but still enjoyable. I have nothing to disagree with there. But then I would also like to add, you can't achieve any flow experience simply by being lazy and hoping it will happen. You have to put in some effort. And therefore, you can't be Instagramming and watching Eamon Holmes and eating crisps and chatting and all and the whole cornucopia of other things that I'm clearly saying from a certain aspect of loftiness certain level of oh I'm above crisps and candy crush or whatever I just listed Eamon Holmes yeah (laughs) notice I didn't say uh you can't be paying attention to this if you're simultaneously watching Andrew Graham Dixon's BBC2 art documentaries on the history of French art and eating French Savage Muir's delicious, absolutely exquisite blackberry jam on a divine croissant from Maison Loaf, which is frankly mm-hmm. exactly the same thing that would apply to me. And then if I was doing that, I would not be paying attention to the thing I was listening to. So you have to make the effort to pay attention as well. Have you got that, listener? <laughs> to achieve flow, it's something that you have to be actively involved in. Yes. Good. Well, I'm glad we got page one of this chapter out of the way. Do do you want to talk about the mushrooms? Because (laughs) it's only a paragraph. Basically, what he's... Yes, yes, I do. I think that he is passing off a sort of like ill-thought-out dismissal of 
hallucinogenic drugs from the sort of like the point of view of oh it's just you know hippies and idiots who take them i think he has i do too i do too yeah i absolutely agree so it, so in the chapter so we get to the 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 french um the frenchman's games we go back to that for a second and vertigo is the most direct way to alter consciousness you know most people uh, you know as kids or as adults we, we engage in this most people do i mean i know there's some straight edge people who perhaps don't but kids spinning around on the spot until you go dizzy changing your what james well I, okay well, i was just, i was going to say me because i've never taken any hallucinogenic drugs but i have been on the swings in the playground and i've gone really high on them with my excessively long giraffe legs so i've had yeah. the kind of head spinning vertigo wild experiences that all those ayahuasca slurping hippies have had in south america um, but 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 what the this this small section on vertigo, this dismissive section on the use of hallucinogenic and mind altering drugs. I'll just just read a little bit. You know, it's, uh, the vertigo is any activity that transforms the way we perceive reality in an enjoyable uh, way. Conscious expanding, he says, drugs of all sorts. Blah 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 blah. But consciousness cannot be expanded. All we do is shuffle its contents. That's exactly what I underlined and put a question mark next to it. (laughs) Me too, and I put the word really. (laughs) Really? If if consciousness cannot be expanded, why the fuck would we be reading this book? Yes, because he's talking about creating complexity of consciousness by making your situation more detailed and challenging what you believe to be true, for example. Yes, and, and, and I can give you a very, very clear, a very, very clear, very, very, very clear um, example of how mind-altering substances have changed my perception and therefore brought something into my conscious mind that I was unaware of. As a younger man, I happily experimented with anything that came my way whilst it was in my first days, my first years at university and, and beyond. And I tried all kinds of mind-expanding, mind-altering drugs. And actually, some of the things that I can quite genuinely say changed were during those experiences. Um, so the idea of never really truly understanding the word love, never truly understanding the word uh, family, never truly understanding what trust meant. I know that during different experiences, I came out of them with a renewed sense of uh, having to explore and find the meaning of those words because it was during the experience that it was pointed out to me I didn't really get it and I didn't I hadn't been trustworthy I hadn't given my love and kindness to to others um I was perhaps more selfish and it's not that that experience in itself completely changed me but it opened my mind to the idea that I didn't understand those words also, the idea that having taken a, a, a mind-expanding drug at a festival and looking around and seeing all the different colours, I recognised in myself in that moment that I didn't usually look around enough. I didn't bother to take in the environment. And if it hadn't have been for those experiences, it may well have been way, way later on that I then bothered to learn to find enjoyment in simply recognising and noticing things that were around me. So I don't believe that you can say... Uh, in quotes, but consciousness cannot be expanded. All we can do is shuffle its content. From my point of view, as someone who's never, ever taken any hallucinogenic drugs, I think that you can achieve similar things and through that you are expanding consciousness or making it more complex. So this, is, this is possibly a sort of like 
Wittgensteinian spat about the definition of words and how they are interpreted. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. but in terms of whether it's expanded or made more complex, let's just for a moment assume that they're the same thing as opposed to shuffling its contents, which is just rearranging rather than adding value or quantity. Um, I think that I've certainly, through doing this podcast, I've learnt to add an awful lot of value to the way I am both when I'm on my own and when I'm in the company of others. So essentially, I feel like I've broadened my mind by be, by having opening myself up to new ideas that would never have just come to me naturally, which has a parallel to taking a hallucinogenic drug and experiencing things that would not have come naturally, which then broaden your approach from that point onwards. Uh -huh. So I disagree that consciousness cannot be expanded. We can just shove things around, like my grandma used to move furniture around the living room. I think that the whole book is about expanding consciousness. So I just suspect that he just has something again. He has, you know, he's anti-drugs or something. But if you go to the, the following page, he also then says, blah, 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 pushing the person to higher levels of performance and led to previously undreamed of states of consciousness. He is... He is saying the opposite on the very next page. But the one thing is, potentially, potentially, um, Chitzen Mikkeli has had his work translated. I don't know whether he wrote it in English, and I don't know whether then the translation doesn't fit. But on one page, he's saying, you cannot... Consciousness cannot be expanded. And on the following page, he says, and led to previously undreamed of states of consciousness. Surely... Well, coming up, there's a bit on uh, justification of Nazi behaviour. So maybe the translator was just a fascist who disapproved of anyone stepping out of line, such as those school dropouts who take those awful drugs and just become reprehensible members of society. Work-life balance is briefly mentioned because he refers to other cultures, for example, natives of New Guinea who spend more time looking in the jungle for colourful feathers that they use in their rituals and their decoration and so on than they actually spend finding food and so on, all the necessary stuff. And um, I think that's something that is massively missing from modern, big, expensive cities where life is quite difficult when you're I, I think that's an agreement with what I was talking about the idea that actually looking for you know we've used it as a technique before to to induce a state of calm which is looking for different colored items and the idea that the native guineans if that's what they'd be called uh, look for brightly colored feathers more guinea than pigs. They look for food guinea pigs that's the what we call brightly them brightly colored guinea pigs um, look for no I don't think that's what we call them <laughs> That's something different. You've 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 mashed my flow, man. <laughs> um, I was saying that it's difficult in a, in a big city like London or Paris or New York or whatever to be able to strike a work life balance when there is a predominant corporate culture that you will spend a ridiculous amount of time devoted to your job while simultaneously. Well, there's lots of things to do with size of cities, uh, work culture, amount of 
time that people spend on, in front of TV and on social media and so on. It leaves very little time to actually enjoy the London or Paris or New York equivalent of finding those colourful feathers in the jungle just for the sheer joy of spending time with your family and friends doing that activity in order to come together and enjoy whatever the ritual is, such as it could be a dinner party. So I'm not talking about the jungle now, I'm talking about living in a city. It could be a dinner party or it could, it could be a game of tennis, as we've talked about. More often than not, the other player is going to say, oh, sorry, I've got a work thing or oh, I'm really tired from working and I'm exhausted this week and I've spent the rest of the time watching Netflix. I feel like we're repeating bits of last, the last episode when I was um, heavily critical of people who work too much and watch too much Netflix. Uh-huh. But, okay, well, let's move on from that then, shall we? Well, that's only, a sh that's only just like the mushrooms. They, he glosses over that and moves on to religion. He says, what we call religion is actually the oldest and most ambitious attempt to create order in consciousness. And then there are loads of examples of all the stuff that is part of religious tradition has been created as a way of bringing people together and allowing them to enjoy their time in a way that makes their life more complex. Because when you invent gods and morals and rituals and things, you create complexity in life. He's not necessarily saying... In fact, throughout this chapter, this point will become at its most obvious when we get to the Nazis. But at no point is he saying that achieving flow is a morally good thing. So I'm not saying religion is good because religion creates flow via the medium of supposed morals and ethics. I'm just agreeing with him in the sense that, for example, religious art, if you look at the paintings, as I did on my grand tour of Italy in the summer, if you look at the paintings on the ceilings of uh, Renaissance churches and cathedrals in Italy, it was very much a ritualistic experience. It's the equivalent of collecting the colourful feathers, painting those ceilings, bringing people together into those buildings and having ritualistic experiences together, which are setting challenges and allowing people to make their life more complex through, in, this, in the case of religion, a moral code. Does that get a yay or a nay from the London Private Practice Studio? You lost me. Right, so I, I didn't have the skills to adequately explain my point. The challenges were too difficult, and now I'm really anxious because I didn't cover religion properly, so I'll have another go. Hopefully my skills will have improved as I've become a more complex person as a result of learning from the mistakes of moments ago. So religion provides a flow experience in a number of contexts. It could be the building of a cathedral, which includes the painting of the ceiling, the carving of the sculptures, etc. It could be the bringing together of people to make their lives more complex by following a moral code. There are many reasons why religion has lasted for thousands of years in every society and given a lot of people a lot of whatever you want to call it, happiness, satisfaction, 
flow or I'm going to use the word complexity because they have to learn a moral code and they have to challenge themselves. And sometimes the challenges are too much. They starve themselves and they don't let themselves have sex outside of marriage and all these other things. It, the challenges can be too much and they can lead to anxiety. Sometimes people just don't put in the effort and they sort of like, they go to church on Sunday but and they yawn th and then they do the all things bright and beautiful thing and then they go home and they don't achieve flow. It's just there's nothing, they, they haven't put in the effort themselves to engage in the challenges of the religion. So that's why religion can be a flow experience. But that doesn't mean that being religious is being virtuous and good and right and that's what everyone should do to achieve flow, because like I just said, there's, there, there are problems with it, and it's just an example of a flow experience. It's not... The, the thing is that religion deals in morals, so it sounds like to say that being religious and having these flow experiences, it sounds like that carries a moral value judgment of it being a good thing, but it's no more a good thing than playing tennis, or as we will discover in a minute, as I've mentioned a few times, being a Nazi. The modern tragedy no is that in the modern times... Oh, no, he doesn't. oh, I like this. I, I underline this. In modern this times... This is a good quote. Do you want to read this quote? What, what with being better at reading than you? Well, just because I've, I've <gasps> James, basically highlighted James, the whole paragraph a, and I didn't, I didn't... James, I didn't James, mark where James, I should stop. James, yes. James, let's read together. There's a challenge for us, OK? So we'll read up to... Uh, but not including the word many, OK? Okay. And uh, so I'm going to say three, two, one, and then we start after the one, okay? Okay. Three, two, one. In, in modern, modern times, art, art play, play, and life, and life in, general, in general have lost their, have supernatural, lost their supernatural moorings. moorings. You're doing because... that on purpose. <laughs> no, because I went. <laughs> the... you, you must be doing that on purpose. No, three, no one would read like that. Two, one. The cosmic in... order that in the oh past God. helped interpret and give meaning to human history has broken down, broken down into, disconnected into disconnected fragments. Fragment. The cosmic order that in the past helped... Oh, are you doing an impression of me? Is that what this yes, is? Yes, obviously. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing an impression of you badly reading a beautiful quote. Let me do it for them. Let me do it for, can I do it for them? Can you just do the whole thing without me also trying to match your pace yes, via yes, a slightly dodgy Skype connection whereby I don't know that I'm necessarily perfectly in sync with you in reality anyway, which makes it difficult to keep pace with you reading simultaneously, which is a ludicrous way of reading a quote because it just makes it too difficult for the listener and therefore we are not matching the challenges with their skills if it's impossible for them to keep up with us reading at two different speeds and we are unnecessarily inducing anxiety in the listener. Let's find that flow channel by just letting Dan read the quote and therefore it will be challenging enough and not boring for the listener to follow, to flow through Dan's intestine of diarrhoea. I will definitely cut that out. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> I don't know because it made so little sense. But perhaps, <laughs> you know, perhaps if your Spanish friend had tuned in, zoomed halfway through this episode, <laughs> you're... Your intestinal diarrhea. I mean, that isn't. That's not even a thing. That, that, 
it doesn't doesn't make any sense. Your intestinal diarrhea. I mean, do, do, do you want me to read the quote all the way from in to fragments, please? Okay, so our good friend Michali Chitzen Michali is just summarising a little bit here. Uh, in modern times, art, play, and life in general have lost their supernatural moorings. The cosmic order that in the past helped interpret and give meaning to human history has broken down into disconnected fragments. So people... many ideology. Oh, I wanted to do that next bit. I like that next bit. Okay. I just didn't want to try and read it with you. Many ideologies are now competing to provide the best explanation for the way we behave. The law of supply and demand and the invisible hand regulating the free market seek to account for our rational economic choices. The law of class conflict that underlies historical materialism tries to explain our irrational political actions. The genetic competition on which sociobiology is based would explain why we help some people and exterminate others. Like the idea that there isn't this one cosmic law and actually we're using all these different kind of theories and ideas. I really like that. We've become fragmented as a culture. But we also have to remember when this book was written and that has... Uh, what, who knows what he would have written if he were writing in the context of social media and people in their own little echo chambers and bubbles, people who don't communicate face-to-face -face because it's all through a phone or a, or a TV, uh, people spending much less of their free time enjoying flow activities and far more of it consuming Netflix and social media, etc. He, he was writing this in the previous century before any uh -huh. of this became before what it is today. Uh, nine, before 9 11. <laughs> um, so I think that what he's saying is way more relevant today than when he actually wrote it, which is why I've titled this page Modern Tragedy, because it's inevitable that it's the challenges of modern life push that x-axis into anxiety and that's why that's why there are so many people who do suffer from anxiety and mental health issues today because it's very difficult to find that flow channel when fragmented lifestyles in big cities with too much time at work and watching tv and on social media makes it very difficult to actually have a flow experience pushing you constantly yeah. into the either boredom or anxiety areas of the graph. Absolutely. And I've... Moving on. Yeah, I've concluded this page by saying, in my life now, so let's bring it back to the only child, in my life now, complex social events are so elusive as to be almost divine. So there are two aspects here. One is that I have to make an effort to socialise and with a kind of nomadic lifestyle, constantly moving around to different places, the the uh, requirement is that I have to create social situations myself. But if if I have any chance of being able to have some kind of enjoyable evening with maybe with board games, maybe with dinner and conversation, maybe going to the theatre and then talking about it afterwards, maybe just a long walk or a visit to, to an exhibition or something. Because I spend so much of those activities alone, 
or I'm with other people on the rare occasions in situations that don't lend themselves to flow activities. To me, this is a, uh, a thing that I value highly. It's, I'm trying to think of a sort of like capitalist analogy. It's gone up in price because scarcity of resources and so on. Do you see what I mean? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So my life in the past year, and I've made this happen, I'm not blaming other people or the world in general, has resulted in a lack of complex social situations or situations that present complexity and enjoyment and so on. They're so elusive as to be almost divine. So it's almost as if I would like to pursue my own religion of creating social situations in the future and bringing friends together and doing things where there, are, there, there is the harmony of challenge and skill eliminating anxiety and boredom because you know we've, we we when we started this podcast we talked about um we talked quite a lot about anxiety and boredom in social situations going to parties and being anxious failing to connect with other people not being empathetic leading to boredom so those were always issues for me and that's why we started doing this podcast james yes i became the overwhelmed by an idea that I'm not I'm not sure that he talks directly about yet tell me if I'm wrong something struck me um, when I was just reviewing my notes whilst you were talking there and some of my notes were highlighting a section that Chikzenmikali had written about certain tribes and certain cultures that had developed and that when anthropologists studied them, they noticed that the cultures were inherently in fear, they were mistrusting, they were worried, they were concerned. They had basically developed culturally a, a life and a culture and a lifestyle that was inherently negative and damaging and frightening. And, and in the chapter, he talks about different African tribes that might be so obsessed and fearful of sorcery and magic and witchcraft and mistrust and, and darkness and the devil and danger that they were unable to enjoy life. There were, no, there were no outlets for joy. There were no outlets for creativity and experience and games and pleasure. They didn't have them. And, it, and he says in the book, you know, no value judgment, that they developed accidentally through just, you know, just the way they evolved. And, and I'm wondering whether we are living in a time that is creating a culture whereby rather than flow activities, we are developing habits and cultural patterns and behaviours that are actually creating anxiety and self-consciousness and self criticism rather than focusing on activities as well as well as boredom so anxiety on the one axis and boredom on the other yeah, anxiety and boredom or anxiety through boredom potentially um that, no that's that's taking the graph and twisting it round until you're almost making a paper plane out of it which would then have to deliver paper emotional baggage down an origami chute at the airport to make my joke work from earlier. So you were talking about cultures that create anxiety because of social norms, expectations, etiquette, laws, rules, which could be anything. All of it combined, more specifically, is creating an atmosphere for anxiety. 
Um, and you're saying that maybe a modern culture in a city such as London or New York, a modern big city, would create a similar kind of anxiety, make it difficult to establish flow activities in your life, or just make it that little, just another obstacle to enjoying your life and making your life more complex. And I was saying that you can add boredom to that, so the other axis. So you could be more and more anxious due to the lack of free time you have or the excessive demands on your life to pay your rent and do all the things and you don't have the same benefits that your parents' generation had. And at the same time, simultaneously, there is the boredom of scrolling through screens and just staring square-eyed at TV shows, which is another aspect of the culture that eliminates your ability to enjoy your life. Uh, so that doesn't mean that you can't, because as is the theme of this episode, flow is a doing word, you have to do it yourself. But um, Boom. But, Boom, yes. So there are examples in this chapter of other cultures where the, the, the culture itself makes it difficult for flow to be established. And you're saying that modern city culture does that. And we talked quite a lot about that in the last episode in relation to TV and Netflix and things. Meanwhile, in France, one thing I was really surprised by last year, I wasn't all that familiar with the idea of languages other than English being far more rigid and formalised, specifically so, sort of like through previous periods of enlightenment and so on, whereby people actually sat down and said, we need to rein in the language, everyone needs to be on the same page, we need to have rules that everyone understands so that we don't split up a country into loads of different dialects and so on. So French is a very regimented language. It's only now, in retrospect, that I can make sense of times when I would sort of like jokingly make up words in Montpellier and be faced with not anger, but it may be mild irritation, confusion, just basically, a, no, no, you do not make up words. That is not how you speak French. I would make, try and make play on words and things, and people would kind of laugh but say, no, 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 you don't do that. No, no, that's not French. Um, and I also noticed in the culture, way more so than exists in life in London. For example, between 12 and 1, France lunches. If you try and get a table at sort of like half past 1 to 2, you're met with, what do you mean you want a table? It's coming up to 2, France no longer lunches, you stupid foreign idiot. It's not lunchtime. It's, it, it, I thought, oh, you, how quaint that... Um, you know, they're so old fashioned and they all have lunch at the same time. Whereas in London, you know, people go to Pret at three o'clock in the afternoon, 11 o'clock in the morning. You know, not, you don't think about, oh, is it national lunchtime or not? That's just an example of French culture. There are many others to do with uh, bank holidays where everything is shut. Sunday afternoons, everything is shut. Um, events where people all do the same thing. Like there'll be a day, a national holiday where everyone meets their family and has a certain type of lunch together and there will be a traditional dessert or something like that. In, the, in, in London, that happens once a year on Christmas Day and it's sort of like an old-fashioned, silly, traditional novelty. Well, we're all getting together and we're going to do that thing that we always do and all the traditions are maintained. And then suddenly, the next day, you go back to your own independent life where you do whatever you want at any hour of the day and the thing that really controls it is your job which you need to pay the vast expense of London living. 
So you don't have the national ritual. And I thought it was kind of like silly and old-fashioned and stupid in France, and I would just constantly mock the fact that everything was always shut on a Sunday afternoon, the fact that people all talk in a certain way and they all say the same expressions. And if you try and play with the language, you're met with faces of total confusion and mild irritation rather than, oh, isn't that wonderfully creative and poetic and aren't you a very talented only child? Right. Okay. No, I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, no, the idea that the French culture has, has, is built up on rituals and uh, routines that are adopted nationally that we don't have in Britain uh, is, is, a, is a really interesting thing. And I guess that's part of the f- French flow as a nationality. And going back to the point earlier about uh, our culture being uh, you know, disintegrated and being disjointed, I think that's very true. And I, and I think, if anything, that would cause for people in London, which is obviously where we, we've been talking about a lot, like a, a huge deal of anxiety in, in some ways. It's like having to make your own routine and ritual and culture. So it kind of separates people and, and, and puts them in their own space, which perhaps now that I'm saying it might actually lead to a kind of a lifestyle flow, you know, but a very personal individual one rather than a national one. Well, it presents opportunities to create the flow yourself, which you need to do, but there's not enough of a framework. Oh, hold on. There's a phone ringing here. I'll wait for it to finish ringing. Oh, it's cool, though. Got a little ditty in the background of private practice. It does the there whole thing twice. Again. Here we go. For the sec- this is the do, second do, 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 do. and presumably last round of it. So the... Oh, no, it's going for a third round. It's not my brother, is it? Seeing if you want to do something on a Friday night because he knows you're all on your own and you've got no mates in Spain. You're all on your own and you've got no mates in Spain. Okay, so there is the opportunity to create... It's essentially a blank canvas and let's just stick to London life for this example. If the old-fashioned rituals of religion and family and old ways of life are no no longer apply, culture no longer apply, there is the opportunity to create new rules or new guidelines for a fulfilling and complex and enjoyable life. But that requires some kind of leadership because if everyone tries to create their own rules, no one else plays by the same rules and then you get frustration and anxiety. Similarly, it's worth mentioning that whilst... that I'm not saying that France is perfect and we should all have lunch between 12 and 2 and we should be very rigid in our use of language and all that sort of thing because some of the baggage that goes with that is that it's more obvious that women are still you know those ditzy little pretty things who don't have a brain and do the shopping and men go out to work and the 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 the, the progress that has been made in cosmopolitan cities to eliminate some of the pitfalls of the old regimented rules of religion and social hierarchies and things whilst they have just blown up the hierarchies and left people in states of confusion and anxiety, they have, in the process of blowing up the hierarchies, they have quite rapidly overturned a lot of um, sexism, homophobia, racism, all sorts of problems that still exist in other places that are more traditional, where 
the majority of people are probably happier and suffer less anxiety, but then at the expense of the gays and the women. So you can't really say the majority if we're eliminating all the gays and the women and the racial minorities. You're really left with quite a small minority of flowing white males. <laughs> happy, happy, flowing, wealthy, wealthy white males. Well, yeah, well, oh, yeah we have but to you're a, eliminate I, the poor as well, yeah. I think you've hit on something here, James, but it's for a different podcast. Completely. So let's get back to the Nazis. Let's get to the Nazis. Talking about another group of white males, let's talk about the Nazis. So, Chits and Mikkeli. This is the first time I've actually attempted his name. You've perfected it from day one and used it for... Chits and Mikkeli. Chits and Mikkeli moves from the rigid French social constructs to Nazis. He says... It is certainly true that for great segments of the European population, confused by the dislocating economic and cultural shocks of the 1920s, the Nazi fascist regime and ideology provided an attractive game plan. It set simple goals, clarified feedback, and allowed a renewed involvement with life that many found to be a relief from prior anxieties and frustrations and therefore achieved that elusive flow between anxiety and boredom. It gave people purpose, but with clear goals and clarified feedback that also eliminated anxiety. So being a Nazi in 1920s Germany was a nifty little life hack to achieve flow which is why i said earlier on in the episode and it's emphasized in this book achieving flow isn't necessarily a morally good thing there are other considerations we are in this book it's quite a technical this is how you achieve flow but as an individual you have to put more in yourself to achieve that flow without becoming a Nazi or a tyrannical religious fundamentalist or anything else that may have what I'm going to call consequences. Okay. Is, is there a question there? Is that you, you've paused? To say that these are the ingredients for enjoying yourself, making your life more complex and being happy, uh, simple goals, clarified feedback, uh, involvement participation, concentration, <laughs> concentration, <laughs> sorry. That's, to, to say, to, to get to, if you, if you say that's, uh, that's what you need, that, although those are the predeterminers of achieving a flow experience, you can apply that to being a Nazi. You can apply that to being a religious fundamentalist, just like you can apply it to being a perfectly happy and decent tennis player or conversationalist or artist. So there isn't a value judgment as, as if to say... Uh, that, you're back to the value judgment idea. Yeah, Good. so it's not, it's yes. not saying that if you achieve flow, well done, aren't you great? It's just... It's, it's you can achieve flow in destructive activities as well as creative activities. Yes, so therefore the, you have a responsibility to think about that. You can achieve flow through segregation as well as inclusion. Yes. You can achieve flow through denigration as well as elevation. You can achieve flow through humiliation as well as celebration. Hmm. 
Do you want to do some mental arithmetic? We rehearsed this before the episode because he moves oh, yeah. swiftly yeah. from okay. Nazis to the average American adult's division of time. Again, this was in the end of the last century, but it's, I don't, it hasn't changed that much. Um, he says, for example, TV watching, the single most often pursued leisure activity in the United States today, leads to the flow condition very rarely. And then from that example, he gives a breakdown of hours uh-huh. people devote to different things. Well, I'm not sure they're actually on this page. They could be anywhere. I wasn't... Let's go with page 82. Oh, yes, that's where it is. Well done. Thank you for that. So... <laughs> They spend a slightly smaller... Oh, no, let's start from the beginning. Um, they work about 30 hours a week and spend an additional 10 hours doing things irrelevant to their jobs while at the workplace, such as daydreaming or chatting with fellow workers. So that's 30 plus 10. 40. They spend a slightly smaller amount of time on the order of 20 hours per week, involved in leisure activities. Seven actively watching television, three hours reading, two in more active pursuits like jogging, making music or bowling, and seven in social activities such as going to parties, seeing movies or entertaining family and friends. The remaining 50 to 60 hours that an American is awake each week are spent in maintenance activities like eating, travelling to and from work, shopping, cooking, washing up and fixing things, or in unstructured free time like sitting alone and staring into space. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> That's one of my favourite things to do. Mm -hmm. I'm not... <clears throat> I'm not even joking. I'm not even joking. I genuinely have learnt to enjoy spending some time sitting on a chair and doing nothing. My feeling in my throat tells me that I'm doing too much talking. I will very, very briefly explain why, according to Nicoly, <laughs> I'm just going to Madonna him. The chapter moves on to talking about how excessively selfish people and excessively self-conscious people find it very difficult to achieve flow because if you're constantly self-conscious, you're pushing yourself too far into anxiety. It's too difficult to pay attention to challenges, games, conversations, whatever activity it is, or work, because you're constantly thinking, am I stupid? Am I ugly? Am I fat? Am I this? Am I that? Oh, that rhymed. Meanwhile, at the, other, at the other end, you've got incredibly selfish people who are never invested in any activity. They don't enjoy the conversation because they are only talking to someone so that they can talk about themselves. They're only going to the art gallery so that they can show off that they've been there. Going to the party so that they can impress people. Uh-huh. Are you talking... Are you, are you saying, OK, in the book... Um... It talks about different personality types and the kind of person that can engage in flow activity. And listener, think about which person you are <laughs> if you would like to engage in more flow activity. Are you saying 
You agree with it? You disagree with it? You find that really interesting? What are you saying about that? Okay, I, I agree with it and find it interesting. The structure of the chapter is that most of the things we've talked about so far are properties of activities that lend themselves to flow or not, characteristics of society that lend themselves to flow or not, and then he looks at, but what about the person themselves? So let's just assume that you don't live in a stressful London context where you're working too much and then the rest of the time you're glued to Netflix and Instagram. Let's assume that all the conditions are perfectly reasonable and could allow that channel of flow to do exactly that. Flow like the river running through Burgos with its ducks and its reeds and its lovely trees either side and pedestrian promenades and it could all be great. But you need to work on yourself to fulfill that potential by not being overly anxious and self-conscious and not being overly selfish. I know what to think about myself. I think that I've been both anxious and selfish and I have not enjoyed things as a result of that. So it's of interest to me. I've got my own selfish interests relevant to this bit of the chapter. I read this bit of the chapter and I think, yes, that relates to me. It's interesting to me and it is in the context of the chapter as being a, a, a moving on from external conditions to internal conditions. And in relation to our podcast, it's probably the most relevant because we talk about developing yourself in order to face that which is outside of it, the world. Right. Okay. I like. So to our listener, to summarise, because to be honest, we... We really focused on some very small elements of this chapter. There's some really interesting stuff on the neurology. I guess different sort of um, ways people can use their brain and and different um, uh, conditioning for someone to be optimally attuned to be able to to create flow. There's lots of interesting stuff actually later on in the chapter, but we've focused on some very small points. So in summary today, uh, and in summary of, uh, you know, in answer to what James just said, we may well have characteristics that are selfish or anxious or engage in boring, mind-numbing activities um, due to the conditions that we're currently living in, as well as the way that we've been brought up, as well as the society and the culture that we are living in and engage with. But flow activity, although it doesn't, it isn't a moral imperative to achieve flow, and in fact achieving flow can be in activities that are actually um, damaging and detrimental to others, Flow does have certain qualities that may enable you to achieve and enjoy not only mental states, but um, physical and creative pursuits, as well as meditative and calming pursuits that bring a quality to your existence that if you do not try to engage in the flow activity means that you are you're missing out on something. Flow is something that although certain personality types are able to achieve more easily and certain cultural groups are able to achieve more easily and in certain mental states you can then access your internal flow more easily flow in itself is not something that is blessed and bestowed upon individuals because they just are capable it takes activity it takes effort it takes practice it takes a an awareness and an understanding, and it takes time. So the conditions of flow are multitude. The conditions of flow are not simple, 
but there is the idea from the author of the book that we are all capable of achieving flow and we're also all capable of achieving flow in positive creative pursuits and one of the questions that we will leave the listener with today is what is if anything getting in the way of you achieving flow if you wish to achieve it and what is it that you can do about that and we could potentially refer you back to some of our previous seasons of private practice podcast for that does that seem like a fair summary james uh, that was a fantastic summary i mean the only well, thing that the only thing you missed out is the bit that we uh, we said enough times that you didn't need to include so maybe that's why you left it out but to say that it's cumulative so establishing flow is not sort of like from a to b b is you've arrived now finished that that flow channel is infinite and it just leads to more and more complexity and enjoyment throughout life mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. another thing that we said more than enough times which is that achieving flow is not morally virtuous righteous good or anything because you can be a flowing nazi um and on that bombshell i think we should say goodbye today i do but i wonder if let's establish again that i cannot play the guitar but i have a guitar in front of me i wonder if we can actually together a bit like when we tried to read the chapter together that wasn't quite so successful but i wonder if we can actually do flow to the tune of massive attacks teardrop Doing bird. Yeah. Wait, we said the word of yeah, bird. We both around. got one yeah. of them the wrong We're way both. around. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so one, one two, three. Flow, flow is, is a verb. Flow, flow is, is a, a doing, doing word. word. And then I don't know what comes next. Yeah, it says fearless summer rain, I think. Should we do just one more? Yeah, so one more. Okay, okay. So one, two, three. Flow, flow is a verb. Flow is a doing word. <laughs> anyway, so from the Private Practice London Studios, it's a goodbye from me, Daniel P. Brown. And from the Private Practice Studio in the north of Spain... It's goodbye from me, James Hall, and thank you very much for listening. You can contact us on our website, privatepracticepodcast.net. There's a contact us submission box. We will be able to see your message if you send it to us. Uh, You can find all other episodes on there. We don't have social media channels because uh, I find it really tedious, the idea of creating them, and Dan hasn't done it, and I fully endorse him not doing it or doing it i have no value judgment to put on that however we're not doing it you can find either of us if you're interested in trees and architecture then follow me if you're interested in dan's massive aubergines follow him all right take care guys goodbye goodbye <laughs> <laughs> it's the wonderful